Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Alright, good evening. My name is Derek Taylor. If you were listening to this as a podcast or watching my YouTube channel, I welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is my monthly um, monthly lecture I give normally. Uh, on controversial topics in the history of the Catholic Church. Um, my, uh, my profession, if you don't know, if this is the first time you're listening, I teach uh, history at a local community college where I live uh, in Kansas City. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, and so this is, uh, uh, this is my own personal effort to sort of uh, give Catholics uh, a little more information on controversial topics in the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's old. It has a lot of <laughs> a lot of controversial things uh, in its background. So, uh, if it's the first time listening, welcome. I hope you guys uh, enjoy this. The topic uh, for this uh, for this edition is the Catholic Charismatic Movement, 1967 to the present. Uh, so, uh, so let me uh, let me dive into this and get started. And first thing to talk about. <laughs> Is, uh, what is the Catholic Charismatic Movement? <clears throat> what is that? Maybe you've never heard of it. Probably you have. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. So the first part of this is called defining a movement. So the first thing is charismatic Catholicism. <clears throat> first, those Catholics who, um, who have experienced, had a personal experience of the Holy Spirit, as one theologian puts it, quote, a radically new and deeper relationship with the triune God in the life of the Christian characterized by the reception of one or more of the charismatic gifts, unquote, um, basically means you had a, you feel like you've had an experience of the Holy Spirit. So you can either do things like speak in tongues, um, heal, or you've been healed by the Holy Spirit, those sorts of things that are generally, by the way, this is going back to the Bible and to the book of Acts. So this is what this means when you talk about a charismatic experience. Um, Charismatic Catholics emphasize charismatic gifts. They emphasize the Holy Spirit. They emphasize having that direct personal contact with the Holy Spirit um, through prayer, uh, through charismatic prayer. It's called that uh, uh, in their uh, in their gatherings. They put a lot of emphasis uh, on reading, knowing the Bible. That's one of the things that uh, has motivated the char uh, charismatic movement since its inception, late 1960s. That's where it draws, as you're going to see a lot of its ideas from but it's a uh, it's form of spirituality and devotion. And it's characterized by a sort of small group Pentecostal in quotation marks style, style worship. Um, if you don't know anything about this, as you're gonna see in this, in this lecture, in this talk, um, charismatic Catholics draw have drawn explicitly on Protestant uh, movements uh, called Pentecostal movements. So um, they're drawing on Protestant uh, examples in all this. So that's in brief what charismatic Catholicism is. So why is this controversial? Why are we having a, a, a talk about it? Well, there are a few things. <clears throat> um, one is the uh, notion of baptism in the spirit. We'll get to this. This is a key concept in definitely in Pentecostal um, theology has been in uh, Catholic char charismatic circles, although we'll just see with some, some differences. Uh, second, I said, if you're watching this, you can see the slides, uh, ecumenical blues. 
uh, charismatic Catholics have tended to be very ecumenical because of their emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Um, but the, the, some people have raised concerns about this because it seems to blur the distinction between the Holy Spirit and the church as an institution, which is one of the things why it makes it a little bit controversial. Um, <clears throat> thirdly, and one of the reasons uh, for, its, for its success, and I forgot to mention this one, what it is, depending on how you, how you, how you count these numbers, which, which organization you listen to, something like 120 million Catholics worldwide identify with uh, the charismatic movement uh, by more than that, engage in what you'd call a lot more than that, engage in what you'd call charismatic practices. But this can also be uh, a matter of controversy within the Catholic Church for reasons that I'll, I'll, I'll make explicit in the lecture. And then finally, and this is one thing I'm going to talk about here, um, there have been scandals uh, within some of these charismatic uh, communities. We'll talk about this. This is mostly in the I don't want to say distant past, but it's in the past now, mostly for some of these communities, but uh, we'll talk about that because it does get us back into some of the things that make it controversial as a whole. And uh, yeah, before I get into this, by the way, I should, you know, talking about, you know, um, what we do here, just uh, full disclosure, uh, I have really good, some of the most wonderful people I've ever met are, are charismatic Catholics. Uh, one person in the picture is very dear, near and dear to my to my heart. Uh, I am not a charismatic Catholic myself, um, and um, I, I guess I put myself on the more traditional side of the spectrum, of the Catholic Church. Uh, I guess I'd even say tra traditionalist, if you want to put it that way. Um, and I'm not necessarily an adherent or anything like that. So I'm trying to give you a, a, a detached and hopefully impartial view of this, is, is what I'm saying. And but uh, I do have uh, some slight connection. I mean, I, 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 as I'll reiterate again, you will meet if you ever meet Catholic charismatics. Most of them are really, really uh, kind of amazing people for reasons that I'll explain. So um, that's the introduction. Let's get into the the history a little bit here. So the first part of the talk after the introduction, I'm calling "Movements of the Spirit?" The question mark. Origins 1900 to 1970. Now, <clears throat> to explain, I want to give you a big background on this and talk about this in big uh, in big terms, and go back to the 19th century. And I'm mentioning this because uh, social changes that have reshaped. Uh, if you're listening to this from abroad, I don't know if some people listen to this in other countries. In Western countries, the Industrial Revolution reshaped Christianity in the 19th century in a big way. The biggest thing that it did is it created a divide between uh, the middle classes and the working class. Working class, poor people tended to abandon religion uh, in large numbers after the Industrial Revolution. It became a preserve of um, the middle classes, their, their concerns, their tastes, their interests uh, have ever since tended to dominate um, pretty much all the religious bodies of the West for a variety of reasons. I'll talk about why this is a relative to uh, the Catholic Charismatic Movement, but actually particularly the Pentecostal Movement in the second. Uh, another change that hits Western life in the 19th century, a couple of things, things that are going on since the Reformation, but Protestant revivalism, that is to say, we'll talk about this in a second, in America, there are Protestant, um, I don't know the other way to put it, revivalist movements, where you have these big mass movements of people um, uh, engaging in charismatic practices that kind of precedes the Pentecostal Movement. Uh, in the 20th century. Um, but you also have um, the growth of romanticism in the 19th century. Why am I mentioning what is, if you know anything about this, is an artistic movement. It's a, 
a cultural movement. It affects religion. Um, it's hard to hard to understand that before the 19th century, before the modern era, most people who were you know actively religious didn't think of it primarily in terms of emotion, like what kind of psychological state it gives you. They thought about it in terms of doctrine, which doctrine was true or not, which church had the true doctrine, that sort of thing. That shifts decisively uh, across Protestant, Catholic, that world uh, in the 19th century. Um, saying this because it's going to feed into Pentecostalism and then the Catholic Charismatic movement. And then finally, the 1800 to 1970, globalization in the 20th century has also influenced, I think, all the movements I'm going to talk about in this, in this, uh, in this talk here. Uh, not just globalization in terms of people and ideas becoming globalized, but the economy becoming globalized and all the effects of you know, global, global capitalism sort of dissolving communities and upending them. Uh, this happened in the 19th century um, outside of the West in terms of colonialism, because colonial powers up into traditional communities in uh, in the the non-Western world. But it happens in the in the Western world of the 20th century, and I'm mentioning all this because partly what you're going to see in Pentecostalism uh, as a broad movement as it feeds into Catholicism is a response to some of these changes when you no longer can count on you know traditional communities that are you know that uh, stay together forever, where you have things like suburbanization, where people move all the time and, and things become fluid. Uh, the point is, uh, as communities become less and less um, solid, um, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that this affects the way people view religion. It becomes a much more personal, in some ways, individualistic thing. And this will play into both of these movements, I think. Which brings me to the birth of Pentecostalism, which, uh, comes from America uh, originally, uh, which is today, I believe, the fastest growing religious movement in the, in, the, in the world. And it's born out of those Protestant revivals I mentioned, late 19th century in America. Uh, in particular, it developed out of what sometimes is called the holiness movement in the Methodist church. Methodism is a, ultimately an English denomination, which uh, in the 18, late 1860s, 1870s, Methodist leaders in the uh, United States began holding gigantic rallies, um, sanctification crusades, they called them, in which they were referencing the work of the Holy Spirit. They were invoking the Holy Spirit to sort of make them, um, to make them holy, basically. And, um, and a lot of them began to think they were experiencing a renew, renewed outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this, um, this basically spawned a desire among a lot of these and it was not just Methodists, other people from other denominations uh, participated in this, which they believed was like the Holy Spirit as it descended at Pentecost and Acts. So you had this zeal for what they begin to call spirit baptism, you know, a, a feeling of growing in power on the Holy Spirit, and, um, and for other gifts that are associated with New Testament prophecy, healing, <clears throat> speaking in tongues, prophecy, those sorts of things. Um, this begins to take a turn, takes its its shape in uh, 1901, um, does Pentecostalism proper. Uh, in uh, Topeka, Kansas, uh, a minister came out of this, this holiness movement, uh, Methodist church, a man named uh, Charles Parham, Charles Fox Parham, uh, asked his students at his Topeka Bible School to study the scriptures and determine what evidence might be given of spirit baptism. And... Um, they concluded that speaking in tongues after studying the book of Acts was th this kind of confirmation of this. Uh, and one of his students had an experience, Agnes Ozanam, uh, in which apparently she spoke in tongues. And this became sort of the beginnings of um, 
trying to spread this idea of spirit baptism. And what, what uh, the point here is they began to think and believe on the basis of reading, reading these uh, passages in scripture that this was the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, as had occurred at Pentecost. Uh, and what's going to happen over a series of years that Parham is going to uh, turn to the practice of faith healing, uh, which he borrowed to a certain degree from earlier Protestant churches. And this will become a, a hallmark, a touchstone of all Pentecostal churches, the charismatic movement in the Catholic church, healing will be a big thing. And so it's going to spawn a line of um, uh, Pentecostal healers uh, who, who taught that uh, Christ's atonement provides deliverance from sickness and is therefore the privilege of all those who have the, therefore have the record of the faith. And so this Pentecostal idea begins spreading place out of Kansas, Missouri, Texas, Arkansas. Uh, but it has its biggest, I'd say, it explodes in 1906 when one of uh, one of Charles Parham's former students, a black man named William Seymour, uh, studied under him, uh, took his message, Parham's message of this you know, baptism in the Holy Spirit, to Los Angeles, uh, where he started a, a church in one of the poorer sections of the city. Uh, the Azusa Street Mission, that's called the Azusa Street Revival, uh, where it consisted mostly of uh, ethnic minorities, mostly African-Americans, Hispanics, and a few white people, basically, um, where they would have these ecstatic meetings where they would invoke the Holy Spirit, where they would start praying, they would start having, um, and they would start doing all sorts of wild things. <laughs> um, you had uh, accounts of um, animal-like screams occurring, dancing to exhaustion, running, screaming, fainting, et cetera, et cetera, crying. Uh, but this became a kind of phenomenon uh, and they uh, uh, attracted a number of, a large number of poor people. And I should emphasize this, the initial, um, the initial movement of the Pentecostal movement, late 19th or 20th century, tended to attract working people poorer people for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is that the, um, the Protestant churches after the, uh, after the Civil War in the United States tended to become, as I mentioned before, in the 19th century, very middle class, very proper, very, you know, uh, formal. This is when Protestant ministers started being addressed as reverend, for example, right? That, that, that term of, uh, of respect came in. And so a lot of this is being, uh, a lot of this is being fueled by, you know, uh, poor people in these Protestant churches who think they've less left these people behind. We have a much more informal notion of what worship should be. And uh, I have to say, it's one of the more moving things about the early Pentecostal movement, or even today, when you read about Pentecostal churches um, amongst poorer people, it's one of the more attractive elements of Pentecostalism. If you don't have, if you're, if you're listening to this and you already don't like Pentecostalism, I can kind of understand. Uh, but it's one of the things I find moving about it. It does appeal. It gives that idea that they're experiencing the Holy Spirit gives them uh, some dignity in their lives. It gives them a sense that God, yes, he's touched them, loves them, that they have worth and value. And it's one of the more, again, it's one of the more, I think, um, important things about, especially the early, the, early, um, um, the early Pentecostal communities, which by the way, um, the Pentecostal communities eventually got into the deep South it didn't happen very often, but there were Pentecostal uh, churches in the Jim Crow South that were mixed race. So this idea of the Holy Spirit crossing boundaries was kind of a real thing. Again, it didn't happen that often. Don't get, don't get me wrong; it wasn't normal, but that it did it at all is pretty 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 interesting in a lot of ways. 
And uh, a lot of people who embraced this early on, especially its leaders, thought this was going to sweep the Protestant churches. They wanted to, again, revitalize um, the, the older Protestant churches. They're, a lot of them came from denominations they thought had become too staid. And um, some members of the historic Protestant churches didn't embrace this. Uh, however, for the most part, um, they met with rejection. <laughs> uh, established Protestant churches didn't like this very much for a variety of reasons. Uh, pastors who, um, who endorsed Pentecostal practices were often relieved <laughs> of their ministry uh, for doing so. Uh, missionaries who were sympathetic uh, toward the charismatic movement were uh, uh, lost their financial support. Uh, and parishioners who spoke in tongues were expelled from churches. So they had a lot of opposition. In fact, eventually what's gonna happen after, um, by World War II and just after, they're gonna begin to form their own churches. I believe the biggest of these, uh, uh, Trinitarian anyway, um, uh, Pentecostal churches, the Assemblies of God, um, uh, which uh, comes into, into being, um, and uh, others from after World War II. Uh, despite all this, it keeps growing. And in fact, by the 1960s, you have this charismatic pre uh, um, practices, charismatic prayer, speaking in tongues, actually being to make its way into those older Protestant churches like the Episcopal Church in the United States, uh, for example. And in fact, um, I'm not gonna give you the breakdown, but historians of Pentecostalism like to give dates. There's like three waves of Pentecostal, Pentecostal movements. Um, the second wave begins supposedly, or third, depending on how you date it. Uh, some people say they're four, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, with a charismatic event, a, a preacher started speaking in tongues at a church in Van Nuys, California in 1960. And this is taken to be the wave of Pentecostalism that feeds into the historic churches, including, as you're gonna see, the Catholic Church by the end of the uh, 1960s. Uh, finally, one last thing about Pentecostalism, this is the last thing I'll reference for the most part to, to um, um, these Protestant bodies, these Protestant movements, is that it almost immediately becomes an international phenomenon. Um, these uh, uh, these churches start springing up uh, in uh, by the 1920s in Asia, Africa, Latin America. It begins fairly quickly. This idea of charismatic um, uh, charismatic gifts and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, to other places. As you're going to see, the same thing will happen in the Catholic Church um, a, a few years after this. So. Um, that's in brief, my brief uh, version of the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement, which is still ongoing, obviously. And so from there, from 1960, you begin to have the first tentative meetings of Pentecostalism with the Catholic Church. And now um, the people who are involved in the Catholic charismatic renewal is another word for this movement from the beginning, recognized there were precursors to what they were doing. And in fact, not necessarily in terms of the charismatic prayer or charismatic gifts and stuff like this, um, but in terms of working toward, as you're gonna see, um, trying to encourage people to live a more spirit-filled life. That's, that had precedence in the pre-Vatican II church. In particular, movements like Curcio, if you know what this is, this is a, um, it's a movement of lay people originated in Spain, got in the United States by the 1940s, where groups of laymen and women would meet again for, for, for prayer, for Bible study, stuff like this. A few of the founders of uh, the Catholic Charismatic uh, movement are actually were actually members of Curcio um, before they got into this. Um, there's also there was also a, a movement in uh, Colombia, Bogota, 
what's called Minuto de, de Dios, A Minute of God, which actually originated as a radio and television program in Bogota, Colombia, which also, as you're going to see, will have connections to this Catholic charismatic movement, which is kind of influential. And so there are precedents to a certain degree for this, for this movement a little bit, just in terms of its, uh, its structures and everything. Uh, one of the other things about the context of all this, how this happens is the 1960s. Uh, and two things, well, two things. One is Vatican II. This is the major event in the Catholic world in the, in the 1960s. The, I won't go through this, they don't have time for it, but Vatican II, of course, introduced sweeping changes into the Catholic world. And it created a lot of, uh, created, like, created conflict, <laughs> created chaos, actually. Um, you know, the liturgy was changed overnight. Um, there's confusion about what the church teaches, all this other stuff is going on. At least a lot of confusion uh, in the 1960s. This is definitely part of the background for some of the founders of the charismatic movement. And then just in general, I'm gonna come back to this because uh, I think it's important. Um, but the general, I say crisis of the 1960s, the crisis in general of Western Christianity, because Western Christianity begins to take a, begins to decline massively. People will stop practicing in most Western European countries of the 1960s, majority for the first time. Um, in the United States, as you're going to see, there's going to be an uptick in actual practice in the 1960s among Protestants and Catholics. But uh, in the Catholic Church, it'll actually go down. But the point is, you're going to have this religious crisis in the 1960s in the West, 1960s in the Western world. In specifically in the United States, you're going to have a crisis caused by political and social changes. The Vietnam War will bitterly divide the country uh, along uh, those who, of course, you know, uh, want the government to prosecute the war, those who don't, divides people along those lines. There'll be massive social changes. This is women's rights movement, all those rights movements, um, or racial strife, uh, and, you know, uh, not too different from, from what we're going through now. Uh, massive riots in some of the major cities in the 1960s. All these things are going on which seems to a lot of people to be, look like the breakdown of American society. So keep that in mind, that's in the back of this. In any case, the beginnings of the movement are actually dated to 1967, to one singular event. Uh, in 1967, a group of um, Catholic university students and some faculty at Duquesne University in Pennsylvania um, were on a retreat and they were being aided by, I think, a Pentecostal minister and a couple of Episcopal ministers from Protestant churches. Um, were uh, encouraged to engage in charismatic prayer, which led to them experiencing what they took to be the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Uh, and this is usually this is usually taken as being the Duquesne weekend, sort of a sort of a, a kickoff of the Catholic of the charismatic movement within the Catholic Church. Very shortly thereafter, this this these charismatic um, uh, movements begin to spread uh, quickly to other college towns, um, particularly two important ones. One, uh, South Bend, Indiana, uh, where Notre Dame uh, University is, and um, and to Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, the home of the University of Michigan. Uh, in particular, a couple of grads from Notre Dame had spiritual awakening uh, during uh, during this uh, time. Uh, Stephen B. Clark and Ralph Martin, and uh, they were both intellectuals. Um, Clark, um, they both studied philosophy, um, but Clark in particular was someone who actually went to Germany and got a master's degree in philosophy and all this stuff. They were moved by this, and so they started a charismatic prayer group uh, in Ann Arbor, above a liquor store, um, and um, uh, 
creating, and this is how this basically uh, begins, is first with these charismatic experiences, they start having prayer meetings. And as you're gonna see, this will, um, this will form really quickly into uh, organizations, which we're gonna get to in a moment. Um, uh, and, uh, and Martin and Clark will be very, very central to all of this. Um, plus they start having uh, uh, huge meetings of charismatics at Notre Dame, like from 67 to 65, they held them every year. We're talking tens of thousands. They got so big, they had to hold them in the football stadium at Notre Dame. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Notre Dame Jesus, all that stuff. Um, big, you know, uh, 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 rallies of people and everything. Uh, and so what happens is, uh, moving on, within a, within a very short time, you begin to have communities form out of these local groups, uh, covenant communities, uh, which are sort of um, parallel groups which are organized by these charismatics with um, the intention of living the, their Catholic faith more intensely, of living it to the full, as it were. And what they do start doing is they will actually begin to uh, make covenants with each other to live uh, uh, in, uh, uh, to, in obedience to the, the Christ's commands, to God's commands. Uh, and uh, each of them with their sort of own hierarchy and claims to authority, which I'll we'll get to in a moment. Um, the, um, the, the two most important of these, which we'll come back to in this uh, discussion uh, is, um, are the Word of God community founded in 1970 in Ann Arbor by Stephen Clark and Ralph Martin. And then People of Praise, uh, which is founded by Kevin Rannigan and Paul DeSells, 1971, in South Bend, Indiana. And um, these two kind of become the model in many ways for the rest of the covenant communities in the country. They're mostly, as you can see, they're mostly independent of each other, but these two will have an outsized influence uh, going forward. And they're very, as you're going to see, they become more structured over time. Um, <clears throat> Um, you're going to have, I'll give you an example of um, people of praise initially, you'll, you'll have, you're going to have uh, um, um, basically every member in this, uh, uh, in a covenant, uh, these covenant, early covenant communities would have someone who was, they were uh, responsible to, um, someone who, uh, a pastoral leader who reported someone else, reported to a, a district leader, uh, and there was a sort of, there's a, a, a definite hierarchy of people in this sort of charismatic community. Uh, in which, as we're going to get to, this will, uh, this is one of the reasons why it becomes overnight a real fast-growing movement. It's also, as you see, one of its drawbacks. Um, uh, and they also form a national committee in 1970. Um, the Catholic Charismatics, uh, I, don't know, I, I did all these, all these uh, uh, names here, I don't know, but it was a national service committee for all these communities. Um, by 1971, um, I think it's the Word of God, or as People of Praise is publishing a magazine called New Covenant. And they're sending um, literature, uh, articles, tapes of talks they give all across the world. Uh, and in fact, it's from these communities, mostly that uh, uh, um, Catholic, uh, um, uh, Catholic charismatic communities are, are, going to, are going to spread. And, um, and in fact, mostly where this will, it'll turn into a global movement in a few years, uh, basically, one of two ways. Uh, one, on the one hand, you're going to have uh, uh, priests, either missionary priests from other countries, from Africa and Latin America, going to the United States and bringing the stuff to to back to those those continents, or you'll have university students who study in the United States. It'll be um, 
that'll be involved in these things, where that'll be the way it gets back to all of these, all these countries. And in fact, very quickly, you're gonna have communities established um, all over Latin America um, by 1974, very early on, Bolivia, Peru, um, by 1970, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, um, Guatemala, Mexico, Costa Rica, all by 1972, very quickly. Uh, again, that's why I mentioned globalization earlier. It almost automatically becomes a global movement, um, partly because America's position in the world at that point, but also because of um, uh, uh, um, because of those ties uh, going across uh, across uh, the rest of the world, by the time uh, uh, it uh, also, by the way, gets into Europe at an early point, you'll have communities founded by 1973 in France, Vienna, and Austria, uh, other places. Gets introduced in Belgium uh, as well. So this is actually getting a lot of places very very quickly, not unlike um, the Pentecostal movement. Uh, and so, and I say this by the way, I'm the my talk, as you're seeing, is focusing a lot on uh, American matters because it began there. It definitely has a global uh, a global element to it, which we'll come back to. So don't worry about that too much. So okay, so you have this uh, establishment of this um, uh, this movement where people are, you know speaking in tongues, prophesying, they're giving prophecies too, uh, all of a sudden over the first few years. Uh, as you're going to see in the next part of the talk uh, here, if you're, if you're watching on, on YouTube, is Triumph and Tribulation, 1973 to 1905. Um, it's going to see a massive growth and a massive growing influence of this movement early on in the 1970s for a variety of reasons. And in particular, it's going to attract um, attract the, um, the attention of people in Rome. Uh, and in particular, you're going to have... Um, a cardinal, uh, a Belgian cardinal, and Colonel S Joseph Sunens, uh, take an interest uh, in uh, in the uh, the charismatic movement in the United States, and in fact, he invites some of the leading members to uh, the city of Malines in uh, in uh, in Belgium, 1974. Issues a series of pamphlets on this, and he becomes essentially its promoter um, to Rome. And in fact, he, partly with his help, the uh, leaders of the early charismatic movement, people like Stephen Clark and Rannigan and DeSales and, and, uh, and Ralph Martin, uh, gain an audience with Paul VI, Pope Paul VI in Rome in 1975, where they, they, they perform a charismatic mass in his presence. Um, people actually have, they're actually you know, speaking in tongues and that stuff in front of the Pope in St. Paul's, uh, uh, St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, and the whole thing ends with a series of prophecies. So it has this big movement where they've been recognized in some ways uh, by Rome. And in fact, by 1975, they even have an international office, uh, communications office in Rome. Uh, and, so, um, and so they're beginning to sort of gain ground within the institutional church. Uh, at the same time, they're also beginning to make ties or the leaders of the, um, of the charismatic movement with, um, with people in the the, the uh, Protestant charismatic world, in particular, I'm going to come back to this. They're, they make um, they make contact with people in the early 1970s in what's called the shepherding movement. And we'll come back to this um, a little later on. Um, this is part of uh, a branch of the Pentecostal movement within Protestantism, which, as you can see, is going to become controversial for what will be um, uh, as you're going to see for or for good reasons. Um, but they're making they're making they're branching out. Um, they're basically trying to make a, this is another thing I forgot to mention about, is um, some of these 
uh, covenant communities are composed only of Catholics. Others are ecumenical. That is to say, they actually will take people from other denominations. It'll be an ecumenical group, basically. And so there was, from the beginning, a, an ecumenical bent to the charismatic movement. And in fact, in 1975, um, the leaders of this um, um, leaders of the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church um, attend a, a national, what's called National Men's Shepherd uh, Conference uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. Again, this is about shepherding has to do with authority in the church. Again, we'll come back to this, but um, they begin again um, building this movement up uh, 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 as they go, uh, making contacts with them. And they actually have, this culminates with a, a really big uh, uh, conference on charismatic renewal in the Christian churches, as it's called, in 1977, again in Kansas City, 50,000 people uh, crammed into uh, Arrowhead Stadium. Uh, and so you're having this, you know, what seems like this big um, push, you know, again, one of the things that's uh, happening in the 1970s that the, the church is looking for, signs that the, the Second Vatican Council has, you know, led to things like renewal, led to things like ecumenical endeavors. Well, here you go. You got the, you got the, here you have one right here. Um, and so it's it seems to be budding uh, uh, into something uh, fruitful for the church. And uh, in fact, there are several attempts made because you have all these groups that are mostly not aligned with each other. Um, an attempt by the two biggest ones, the word of God community, oldest ones, people of praise in the 1970s to form a union, it doesn't work. Um, but instead, in the early 1980s, you're going to have the, uh, a, a, a sort of federation of these communities uh, under the aegis of the Word of God community called the Sword of the Spirit, um, with the idea of turning it into a more organized, I guess you could say, sort of thing, where you have everybody on the same page. And it's sort of like a refounding to a certain degree uh, in, um, uh, in terms of um, the structure and uh, the direction of, of some of these covenant communities, which we'll get back to, which is going to be a, a, a turning point uh, in most uh, things that are written about this for a variety of reasons. Um, and in fact, it's in the 1980s, I think by 1987, numerically speaking, that uh, at least in the United States anyway, the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church reaches its apex. It seems to have more members by then. And I should mention when I talk about covenant communities, like these are very small communities, most of them. They're not huge. I believe today people of praise is you know, like 1700 members total nationwide so it's not like they are huge they're mostly small groups in and of themselves but things begin to take uh, a turn uh, after uh, the sort of the spirit is founded and um, there can be a series of scandals emerging in the 1980s uh, in some of the, in, and 90s in some of these communities uh, in 1985 you're going to have um, um, Actually, there's a series of articles published in, uh, in New York Times and elsewhere on one of the uh, allied communities of the Sword of the Spirit called People of Hope appear in a local newspaper in New Jersey. And you're going to have all these claims made against, uh, against the People of Hope that, uh, that it's a cult, that um, you have these sort of controlling people that are trying to, you know, uh, control people's lives. You're having these um, accusations of things like... Uh, all sorts of things about the, the nature of the authority. They're trying to take over the parish because they were actually in a invited into a parish in New Jersey. And um, this is one of the first times you're gonna get some negative publicity for um, uh, one of the first times you'll get negative publicity for the charismatic community. Um, this is actually gonna be a pattern 
because you're going to start to get um, former members leaving some of these covenant communities and uh, making uh, a series of um, claims, allegations against um, against uh, communities like People of Hope. Later on, I'll get to in a moment, Mother of God community in Maryland. Um, allegations like psychological abuse, uh, controlling behavior. And what do I mean by that? Um, for example, uh, telling members if they leave that they're gonna go to hell, stuff like that. Um, in terms of excessive control um, in these communities, these covenant communities, again, they're basing everything on the Bible. They take um, deadly seriously what they call, at least back then, what they called the headship model of the household, where basically the male is the head of the household. And, and they took this to some very, they took this to extremes in some ways, did some of these sort of spirit, sort of the spirit communities where you had husbands literally making decisions for their wives, like making schedules for their wives, uh, doing stuff like this. Uh, no. um, where you have um, the community determining aspects of people's lives, like where they go to college, <laughs> uh, what jobs they would get in order to help the community, uh, whom they could date, whom they could marry, stuff like this. Uh, demands of strict obedience to um, to their head, this is a term we'll come back to in a moment, your immediate sort of pastoral director was called a head in a lot of these, a lot of these communities uh, based on this headship model, which we'll come back to. Um, you know, treating any sort of questions as disloyal, um, basically having the, the, uh, these little covenant communities become replacements for families, you know, trying to distance people from their families and distancing themselves from parishes and from the local bishop. Um, one of the accusations get, get made in, uh, against some of these communities, they had a sort of Manichaean attitude toward outsiders, uh, suspicious, um, you know, everybody outside the community is not, you know, not one of us, that sort of thing. Um, and for reasons that will come apparent in a moment, and all this stuff came out, by the way, in that, that original article. I mentioned this partly because this is uh, one of those articles in the New York Times is apparently the inspiration for uh, Margaret Atwood's novel, A Handmaid's Tale, uh, was reading accounts of this, of this group uh, in, uh, in the newspaper. And uh, there are a lot of these people, a lot of these accusations being made, so much so that in 1990, the Word of God community in Michigan issued a, um, a report. They went and examined their training. They, they had these... I won't go into this too much detail. They had these really extreme training sessions for new members, and they did a they did a, a thorough report on this. And they began sort of rejecting the training that they've been giving their their members. And in fact, uh, what happens is uh, eventually you're going to have a, a conflict uh, between a couple of the two founders of this, Ralph Martin, uh, Steve Clark. Ralph Martin decides that they need to stop doing all this stuff. And the word of God splits off uh, from the sword of the spirit. Uh, Steve Clark remains in sword of the spirit. Ralph Martin takes word of God out of it. And they begin systematically sort of deconstructing all of these things they've been doing for the last 10 years or so uh, in the word of God community. Uh, in fact, uh, a couple of years later, actually, Ralph Martin will actually issue an apology publicly to former members they felt abused and stuff like this for some of their some of the practices they engaged in. Um, and, uh, and so you have that one big split. Same thing happens, similar thing happens the next year uh, at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I need to go back into this for a moment. 
Uh, back in the early 1970s, uh, a Franciscan friar named Michael Scanlon became president of Franciscan University uh, in Ohio. And uh, in the late 70s, 1977, I think, he invited members of the Word of God Covenant community to come into Steubenville and start doing spiritual formation for students and faculty at, um, at, uh, at uh, Franciscan University. What happens is, happened uh, after this point, though, is that uh, as Scanlon sort of um, invited this, you know, charismatic movement into the university is that, and I don't know how to describe this accurately, the members of the, of the Word of God community began and, and eventually formed a community uh, under the ages of the Sword of the Spirit, began recruiting for members from the university um, staff and faculty and from the student body. Um, I, again, I, I don't say this, uh, the, the details are still kind of murky. It, uh, you, you can call it what it is, but basically they, a lot of members of the Word of God community became uh, prominent members of this faculty and staff at this university. And this is, and Franciscan University became the sort of flagship for this uh, in the United States, especially at a, a, among Catholic colleges. You know, if you if you were a believing Catholic, if you were taking Catholic Catholicism seriously and you were worried about, you know, all the chaos in the church in the 1970s or people were, you know, priests were teaching weird things from the pulpit, um, things like, you know, um, uh, that, that everything seemed to be haywire. If you wanted a more, you know, um, uh, if you wanted a, 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 an authentic, you know, uh, Christian uh, education, this is one place that's how they begin to market themselves. It became something a little more more involved than this. In fact, from what I can tell, it looks like you had uh, from documents, and there you can find this stuff on the internet yourself. But uh, former members describe this almost like the Word of God was trying to take over the university, literally. And if you're wondering why, again, um, I'll come back to this in a moment. There's a mentality among some of these groups, they are they are like the spiritual elite, and that the church is being attacked from outside forces, you know, secular humanism, feminism, stuff like this. And this is kind of part of their part of their mentality. In any case, um, these complaints uh, finally get back complaints about this, get back to the bishop, uh, uh, to their bishop, Ottweiler, in 1990. He he issues an investigation, uh, and that's the Servants of Christ the King, which is the actual group uh, at, at uh, Franciscan University, eventually basically says they have an awful system and kicks them out, expels them, uh, uh, says basically they have to uh, break ties with sort of the spirit, causes a big split. Uh, there's a bunch of people who uh, want to remain uh, with the sword of the spirit, a bunch of other ones uh, take a hike and leave. Um, and it's kind of the beginning of the end at Franciscan University for the total dominance of the charismatic movement there. It tends to, it's still there by the way, and uh, I don't mean uh, to suggest everything about that was, you know, awful or something, but it was a, it was a tense moment. And actually, uh, uh, talked with someone who was kind of went to Franciscan just after all this happened and knew some of the people involved with it. Um, but uh, there was this sense that they were kind of, and we'll explain why in a second, that members of these groups were somehow more loyal to their covenant community than they were to the, the larger church. And finally, one of the last big um, blow-ups in all this came in 1985 with the uh, the split of the Mother of God community. Again, a similar thing happens. I don't think the Mother of God community was actually associated with the Sword of the Spirit, but they were from Ann Arbor, Michigan. They eventually started there. They moved to Maryland. 
they attracted, it's amazing. This is one of the things I need to emphasize about this. If you're thinking, you know, you hear these sorts of stories and stories of psychological abuse that maybe they, maybe these covenant communities attracted people who were dysfunctional or had problems, totally the opposite. Um, the mother of God community, I, I say this because the mother of God community, one of the people who was part of it for years as a priest was a, uh, was a Franciscan friar named Thomas Wanandi, was a major theologian. He, he taught at Oxford for years, was a member of that Mother of God community in, uh, in Maryland. And uh, the original People of Praise community in South Bend, one of their members was a physicist who got nominated for the Nobel Prize uh, in physics. So we're not talking about the people involved in this being easily duped or unintelligent or, 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 or somehow psychologically damaged, totally the opposite. Um, and yet the same sort of accusations uh, that I just mentioned, you know, accusations of controlling people's lives, um, accusations, again, also uh, kind of hinted at this, again, about, uh, I don't know what the way to put it, um, I would say, I don't know how to put this exactly, but uh, a distorted view of the sexes. Uh, these are very male, very male-oriented, uh, most of these early covenant communities, like basically only men held positions of authority, basically, like uh, over other men. They wouldn't allow women to have authority over other men, stuff like that. Um, and it blows up in 1994. The bishop uh, there in Baltimore, Nathan Hickey, uh, Cardinal Hickey, I should say, uh, is appealed to. He does an investigation. He basically, again, um, uh, demands they make changes that basically splits up the community essentially in 1995. Now, uh, okay, some scandalous stuff. How does all this happen? I need to talk about this for a moment. Part of what's going on here has to do with the specifics of some of these, some of these communities. Uh, in particular, you're gonna have um, problems in some of the founding documents, like some of these, like sort of the spirit had a constitution. Uh, they, of course, have covenants, written covenants and everything um, <clears throat> um, that caused leading to some of these abuses. Uh, one of their former members of People of Praise, a guy named Adrian Reimers, Reimers, I don't know how to pronounce his name, wrote a whole critique of this um, in the late 90s, which was very, um, uh, I think it was in some ways um, revealing anyway. And um, uh, a lot of the problems are theological. They go back to ideas about um, what the community was doing. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, again, they wanted to have, you know, the base of this community was the idea of, you know, charismatic, you know, prayer, right, and the spirit. And what happened was this attracts, you know, members who are very, very, um, they're very engaged. They're very into their faith. They're not people who are, you know, um, um, dissolute, or they're not people who uh, have a problem they're very, they're very people who've got it together, in other words. And um, um, what happens here is you begin to have, they, they make, and this is actually in some of the covenants, they make a full, full life commitment to these communities. In other words, they put themselves almost totally at the disposal of their, their head. This is the headship model we'll get to, where basically you agree to put yourself under the authority of this charismatic leader. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit, and the, you know, because they have uh, Holy Spirit, they have God's direction for you in life. And again, it goes back to this, this idea that they're imitating, right? The descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This idea is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that you're getting the exact same spirit as you got at Pentecost. 
If you haven't noticed already, there's something, there's a problem with that. <laughs> uh, the problem, of course, is that, and this goes back to the Pentecostals, which they were Protestant theologians who kind of, who pointed this out back when Pentecostals started using that phrase, is that, well, the Baptist, you know, Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit as it descended through Pentecost comes to you through baptism and confirmation. <laughs> it doesn't come to you in these charismatic experiences. It's already come, in other words. You don't get to have, there's sometimes, and this comes out of Vatican II, actually, uh, in a lot of ways, but some people sometimes use the phrase a second Pentecost. And I think sometimes people use this too literally. There's no literal second Pentecost. <laughs> That's a metaphor, but I think what happens in some of these communities, they take this powerful experience they have so seriously. They begin to treat themselves as almost like a brand new church. And this is one of the things that uh, Reimers mentions. You're going to have, uh, for example, uh, people of praise members in some of their literature, early literature, they would literally refer, refer to the people of praise as a community as the body of Christ, quote unquote, the body of Christ. Other words, as if it were the church itself. <laughs> um, in some of the early literature, people of praise and, um, and um, sort of the spirit, you'll have claims that sound like sound like um, these communities are making claims that their leaders have apostolic authority, not apostolic succession, they're not bishops, but they have apostolic authority because of this charismatic experience. Um, <laughs> and again, you have this very, uh, again, this emphasis on this charismatic authority can be, you know, it can be kind of, well, it can be kind of dangerous, right? If you begin to think in those terms, because that, if you have that direct authority, there's nothing else to, you can't say no to that, right? That's the whole point. You make this long, lifelong commitment. It's a full, make a covenant. That's why you get these stories coming out about people saying, well, they, they told me I was going to go to hell if I left. The idea was you were making a lifelong commitment to God solely through this community, which is why I think it led to some of those excesses. It also had something to do with um, the particulars of, uh, particularly the word of God community and later on the sort of spirit, because Stephen Clark was the one who um, was very influential. He was influential in both that and people of praise, but the founding documents, what I've been able to look at of Word of God are much more detailed and specific. And they go in probably more extreme directions even than the people of praise community did. Uh, just give me an example. In one, of, uh, in one of Stephen Clark's writings, he says, uh, unquote, because this community has this, you know, quasi-divine authority, uh, he says, quote, the government of the community extends to everything, unquote, in the lives of its members. That's a really extensive claim. <laughs> I mean, the Catholic Church makes a lot of big claims. I don't think most parish priests want to control everything in the lives of their members. Um, and um, in particular, I mentioned uh, Stephen Clark. He's a kind of an interesting figure, but he had some very particular ideas about how much control the community should have. And if you're wondering why all this begins to happen in this early 70s, mid 70s, when they're writing all these documents down, there's two things. One, um, Thomas Sordas, who's a, a, a scholar of, the, of this stuff, mentioned that you had, again, all these members who joined these communities. Why? They wanted to live a more intense, more authentic, more real Christian life. Um, to be more committed. Well, the problem is, of course, you begin a sort of spiral where, okay, you've already done that. You need to show something even more, more extreme. So you show you're committed and keep showing you're committed, keep showing you're committed. It sort of spirals out of control, I think is what happened. 
again, you have a lot of type A people in these groups, <laughs> the leaders especially. I can't stress this enough, by the way, how impressive most of these people actually are. Um, they're, they're interesting people from the South. Stephen Clark, don't have many uses for his ideas, but he's an interesting figure. Um, Ralph Martin's still around. You can find him doing different things. He's, it seems like an interesting person, but they're very, you know, they're, they're very entrepreneurial. They know how to take things, they know, they know how to get things done. They're competent. They're successful in the world. These are the kind of people you'd normally want in the church. Um, but when it became, you know, part of this sort of, um, part of these little groups that were kind of cut off, it became a little bit more, it became sort of uh, more dicey. Uh, and in particular, one of the things that became, um, one of the things that became a problem was the so-called, I mentioned this before, model of headship. And um, the headship model is actually taken directly from that Protestant movement I call the shepherding movement in the 1970s. And again, it put a lot of emphasis on, first of all, male headship. Again, men running everything in these communities. It put a lot of emphasis on being masculine, being macho, macho man, all this stuff, being a strong Christian man, these sorts of things. Um, almost encouraging a sort of contempt toward members who didn't love this sort of thing. Uh, just in practice, it made for a really, really controlling authority uh, in ways that were ways that I have to stress don't really have anything to do with the, the original charismatic experience that happened back in 1967. But it combined, this is one of the things Adrian and Reber mentioned here, it combines sort of the authorities of a charismatic prophet with that of a bishop. <laughs> you combine the institutional authority with the charismatic in this, in this, this model, and it can be really despotic. And that's one of the, pro one of the things that happened to it is this, um alliance with this you know, ultimately it was a protestant theology essentially so and just to be clear by the way this sh shepherding movement had critics in the protestant world had critics in the pentecostal world amazing thing of all people one of the early critics of the shepherding movement this headship model that i'm talking about in the 1970s was of all people pat robertson if you know who pat robertson is famous uh, Pentecostal minister, ran for president back in the 1980s. He's kind of a joke now. It was a big thing back in the 70s. He wrote a series of open letters in 1975, highly critical of the people who founded the shepherding movement in the Pentecostal world. So there were problems with this from the beginning. There were critiques of this, by the way, as well, um, from original members of the movement. William Story, who was a professor at, uh, at Notre Dame, uh, he actually got, he actually basically got one of these communities called True House, which got into some hanky things at Notre Dame, got it disbanded, uh, sent a letter, open letter to his bishop, uh, accusing him of a lot of different things. And there were people from the beginning who saw some of the excesses that were kind of coming because of all this stuff. Um, and so you have those things becoming a problem uh, in the uh, uh, in uh, in uh, in these uh, in these groups. One of the things I'll mention about this, just to explain why, I don't want to dwell on this too much, because there's a lot of good that comes out of the charismatic movement. Seriously, I'm not just saying that. If you, I, I read through some of the exposés and some of these, you know, these, um, um, some of these cases, the Mother of God community, the Word of God, it's kind of striking how even the people who left and thought they were abused still said they got, there were a lot of good things that were in these communities. It's not as if everything was awful, but they had, went to such extremes, uh, led to some, some abuses there. Uh, one thing I, don't, I want to re reiterate here, again, if you go back to the original origins of, of Pentecostalism, 
how it's born out of changes in society, changes in economic life in the 19th century in, um, in America. Same thing is the case with the charismatic movement and its origins in America. It's born out of all these changes that are going on, all the sort of conflicts that are going on. Um, there's a very much a sense on the part of the founders, people like Stephen Clark and, and, uh, and Martin, that America is sort of facing this, you know, spiritual crisis. It's kind of apocalyptic, their early worldview, especially the word of God uh, founders. The idea that specifically America is being attacked, right, by all these evil forces, Marxism and feminism and secular humanism and all this stuff. Uh, and this gets into directly, like, I mean, literally, <laughs> uh, Michael Scanlon gave a series of prophecies, quote unquote, uh, in the late 1970s, uh, at, uh, at, had a couple of prophecies in the 1980s about, again, what sounds like to an outsider, like it's just a political message because it, it literally deals with the United States. Um, and I should mention this context, this is a very American thing <laughs> to see social life, political life in apocalyptic terms. Uh, even in a specific situation in the late 1960s, um, these charismatic groups have a counterpoint in the part in the secular world, right? Um, if you uh, wanna read a really fascinating book about uh, America in the 1970s, um, I recommend uh, Days of Rage by Brian Burrow. I'm mentioning this. The, the book is about the uh, radical un leftist underground in America in the 1970s. Um, groups, terrorist groups, essentially, like the Weather Underground, the Weathermen, so-called, if you know who those people are. Um, these are leftist groups who thought America was under siege by evil forces, thought that, the, that something extreme had to be done about it, wanted to form small, you know, utopian revolutionary cells to change the country. Other words, had a Manichaean view of the world. They had a a totally like the, the actual content of the beliefs were totally the opposite, but they had a very similar um, perception of what was going on in American society. That's kind of what's happening in the early context of the sort of the spirit, especially because some, some of their training documents mentioned like, you know, the world is under threat from Marxism, feminism, stuff like that. And that's what leads to that, those, the, those, that sort of, you know, um, that sort of uh, dislike of outsiders, you don't take anything outside the community, those sorts of things. Uh, all that fed into this stuff. <clears throat> and then finally, just the temptations of charisma. I, and by here, charisma, I don't mean baptism in the Holy Spirit or anything like that. I mean, just general charismatic leaders. Uh, and I should stress here, by the way, not every covenant community uh, went through this. Um, not everyone had these complaints. I'd say most of them didn't. I think it really is peculiar in some ways. It's sort of the spirit, to lesser extent, people praise. Um, it's the temptation of any community, by the way. Anybody that, you know, you give control to a charismatic leader without sort of institutional constraints can have problems. And I'll come back to this actually, because this gets into other places. It's a temptation, by the way, especially when you combine charismatic and institutional authority. You kind of see this some ways in, uh, in the wider, you know, um, sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic church. People like Theodore McCarrick were, you know, they were bishops, they had institutional authority, but they were very personally charismatic. And that was a bad combination because it meant they could get away with a whole lot. And I should mention those, those criticisms, those, those, those abuses that I just outlined, those are basically the worst things you hear. There was nothing like sexual abuse or anything like that going on in these communities, but um, charisma is a temptation in secular or in your religious life for a lot of reasons. And so, um, and I should say, for the most part, as far as I'm aware, I know Word of God's moved on from that. 
Uh, people of praise, I think, I know they started to make the training for their members different after the 1990s. I still think they have the headship model. Don't think it was there. I don't think their founding, according to the stuff I've read, Adrian Reamer's critique was very helpful. I don't think their founding documents were as sort of um, concise and clear about this stuff as were the sort of the spirit. Sort of the spirit really was the one. And the sort of the spirit still still in, still in existence as well. Uh, Steve Clark stepped down from um, leadership of that group in uh, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. They're still around. Uh, I don't hear the same things. And presumably, presumably, they have moved on from all these sorts of things. In any case, um, we'll, we'll end there, basically, the American part of this. So, 1995, the present, the spirit abroad, because one of the things that happens by the 19, has happened definitively in the 1990s, is that the uh, center of um, the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church has moved way away from the United States. And in fact, we'll get to this now, the center of it is today the uh, countries of Latin America. And one of the things, one of the most um, uh, striking things that happened has happened in the last 20 or 30 years um, in, uh, in this, uh, in uh, Latin America, is what some, some scholars call the Pentecostalization of the continent. You really have this, um, you have this very um, widespread uh, adoption of uh, not just charismatic practices, charismatic um, forms of worship, but just pretty much everywhere across the continent in terms of churches, they've all been touched by it mostly in one way or the other. And in particular, in Latin America, as I mentioned uh, today, you know, the numbers are kind of, they tell the story. <clears throat> Just give you an idea. Uh, one estimate was made eh, about 20 years ago or so. Estimated that, because of course, Latin America for a long time was predominantly Catholic. One estimate made in late 1990s said that um, anywhere between eight to 10,000 Catholics became Pentecostals every day in Latin America. Uh, could be worse by now, who knows? Uh, it's kind of a long time ago. Uh, where at the time, at least 75% of non-Catholics, um, uh, Pentecostals made up 75% uh, of the non-Catholic uh, population in Latin America. Uh, and um, another interesting statistic from a study in the mid-1990s, 43% um, <clears throat> of, um, of, of uh, 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 yeah, a majority of people leaving Catholicism left to go to, to uh, Pentecostalism. And so uh, you have that, uh, uh, that, and again, that dynamic there. Uh, at the same time, you're going to have um, the growth of the charismatic movement kind of in response to it. Uh, and as I'll see in a moment, being adopted by the bishops down there, who were initially very much more so than America and in, 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 uh, in Europe. They were more suspicious of it in Latin America for a variety of reasons. By, by 2014, a Pew Forum study found that in most countries, various place to place, uh, at least a quarter of Catholics identified as charismatics, from a low of 20% in Argentina to a high of 58% in Brazil. Brazil's being the most of these, we'll get to Brazil in a second. Um, Brazil's the most charismatic of these Catholic charismatic uh, countries in Latin America. And um, there are differences with the Pentecostals uh, compared to charismatic Catholics in, uh, in Latin America. You have some of this uh, in the in the, the Catholic charismatic movement in Latin America, but it's definitely more prominent, I think, in the Pentecostal movement is uh, 
uh, is the so-called prosperity gospel. This is the idea that the Holy Spirit, uh, when it descends upon you, gives you, you know, worldly success. It makes you wealth, uh, makes you prosperous. This seems to be something that differentiates to a certain degree Catholic charismatics there with uh, Protestant Pentecostals. Um, you also have, uh, to a large degree, one of the bigger things, of course, that you have a retaining of in most Catholic charismatic communities, an attachment to um, the Eucharist, an attachment to the Blessed Sacrament, you know, um, um, Eucharistic adoration, things like that make them fairly different. There has been, and again, we'll get to this in a moment, there have been differences and, and, uh, and uh, separations, but you're, you have those defining differences being there. Um, there's not been, it's only just now, I should say, the movement in Latin America being seriously studied by, by scholars. It's pretty much amazing. Most of the scholarship on uh, Latin America that I've seen, in fact, this goes for a lot of the, the Catholic charismatic movement. It's either by people who are part of it, which again, they don't have as much distance from it, or by Protestants uh, who, uh, honestly, I question their impartiality, but it does seem a little bit odd. It, we'll come back to this in a moment, but it's kind of interesting. It's just now being studied. In any event, um, one of the things that's notable, noticeable about this, uh, um, this movement in Latin America is that it extends well beyond formal affiliation with Catholic charismatic groups. Lots of other lay groups, parishes are affected by this. So when I say that, you know, when it says 58%, of Catholics in, in Brazil identify with this, that means the practices are spread to a, a much larger degree outside of that probably. So that same sort of Pentecostalization is happening within the Catholic church apparently in terms of worship and stuff like this. Um, a couple of uh, things that are, to note about um, the movement in, um, in Latin America, which I think makes it a little different. I should have mentioned this, um, made this clear about the movement in the United States. In the United States, initially, they started out being about speaking in tongues, stuff like this. Those were the charismatic gifts that they emphasized. It changed pretty quickly. And by today, for the most part, things that are emphasized by uh, Catholic charismatics are healing. If you go into a, your local diocese, you'll probably see a healing service somewhere. That's usually the Catholic charismatics doing that. And that's a little bit different. Um, in Latin America and definitely in Africa, we'll get to that in a moment, uh, one of the big things is an awakening to the reality of spirits in general, good and bad, is a big part of the conversion, quote unquote, conversion process for Catholic charismatics in Latin America. The idea that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, you're, you're having a victory over evil spirits who have caused sickness or psychological problems in your life or physical problems in your life uh, is something that uh, shows up uh, here. Um, according to uh, one scholar, a man named Thorson, uh, very interestingly enough, there is um, there's a little bit of a tendency on part of Latin American uh, charismatics to downplay uh, the theology of the cross, the idea of the sacrifice on the cross. In other words, the emphasis so much on the overcoming through the Holy Spirit of, of these things that, again, a little bit of traditional theology gets downplayed. You have uh, occasionally Catholic charismatics, uh, Latin America expressing contempt for more traditional forms of Catholicism. You're wondering why? Well, traditional forms of Catholicism in Latin America can be, you know, they might be tainted by unbiblical practices, stuff like that. That might be the idea, I think. Um, you also have in Latin America some of the same sort of, I'll go beyond tensions, conflicts <laughs> with local ordinaries, bishops and things like this. Um, uh, Thorson studies Guatemala. Uh, that's his, um, um, his John Thorson. 
And his, uh, he notes that at one point in Guatemala, there were, <laughs> there were um, whole covenant communities and even tens of thousand people, tens of thousands of charismatic Catholics in one diocese in schism with the local ordinary for over a decade. <laughs> so the same sort of tendency towards separation is also present in Latin America. Um, even as you have this uh, more, this even greater emphasis on sort of contact with spirits and everything. You also have, um, um, I would say, a greater, um, a greater uh, influence of Pentecostal forms of, of devotion and, and spirituality. This, especially in Brazil, which might explain its success with perhaps keeping uh, Catholics from becoming uh, Pentecostals. This is usually one of the things that's uh, uh, put forth about it. But as you know, of course, uh, in Brazil especially, there's been the rise of what are sometimes called priest performers. Literally priests, uh, most famous ones, a guy named uh, from Marcelo Rossi in Brazil, who literally has become, he's not just become a, a, um, a metaphorical star, he's become a literal rock star. He's put out his own pop albums. He's made himself a singer. He holds these gigantic rallies in football stadiums that one scholar called mass shows, where again, you're going to have, you know, priests and the people mixing with, again, all sorts of things, <laughs> all sorts of things going on uh, at charismatic worship, uh, dancing, things that Rossi calls, and these are his words, Jesus aerobics. So uh, again, this is one of the ways to counter that influence is going all out and bringing that stuff into the liturgy in a direct way. Uh, again, that's I guess that seems to keep the Pentecostals out anyway, at least in at least in uh, at least in, uh, um, at least in uh, um, Brazil. It doesn't seem to have been affected elsewhere. I don't think that's happened to the same degree in other Latin American countries. Which leads to one of the last things to note about this. This is a debate that I, I don't know how to, how to, I don't have answers for you, but there's a, a debate about, okay, is, does the charismatic movement in Latin America prevent the whole country from just going Pentecostal? Because that seems to be at least, again, I wouldn't say it's a consensus. Most of the people who've worked on this seem to say things like that. Well, it wasn't for Pentecostal, it wasn't for the charismatic movement. Um, people would sort of be leaving. On the other hand, you have a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence that it doesn't, it's not quite that simple. Um, a study, for example, of Mexico in the 1990s found that 43% of the people who left the church for Pentecostalism in the second generation um, left Pentecostalism. And of those who left, 41% uh, left religion completely. Uh, in other words, they didn't come back. Uh, they just sort of went out completely, basically. And, um, and just in general, you have other surveys that suggest similar things. And, and I, don't, I don't know, this just needs to be studied more, more in depth, because one of the things that, uh, that um, <clears throat> one of the dangers, I think, of this is that these types of, you know, the mass shows, stuff like that is, if you make that experience, that one particular experience you're having, the focal point of religion, well, then, of course, what do you need the sacraments for? What do you need the authority of the church for? <laughs> In other words, it becomes a way out, uh, in other words. In fact, you have a lot of anecdotal evidence, anecdotal evidence that it does this. I came, I came across this phrase in several different places, mostly, by the way, from Americans, to be fair, that, uh, that the charismatic movement was, quote, uh, one lane in the church and six lanes out, unquote. And in fact, a couple of the scholars of Latin America admitted that the, the uh, charismatic uh, groups were amounted to a, quote, unquote, revolving door in and out of the church. 
So it's not clear to me necessarily that that's necessarily the case. It's preventing the wholesale takeover of Latin America. Hard to say at this point, but it's a, it's a controversial thing for obviously obvious reasons, uh, even if it's had uh, some good effects in other ways. And so what about other parts of the world, uh, particularly uh, Asia and Africa, some differences? <clears throat> well, Latin America is definitely the sort of heartland of the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church today. Um, whereas the movement got into Africa pretty quickly in the early 1970s, you had again missionaries, uh, priests bringing it back from the United States, university students who studied in the United States came back uh, to African countries. Uh, and it kind of peaked its influence in the 1980s. Um, again, among a lot of its members were among university educated younger people. So it's very similar to the founding in the United States, which is it's, it's kind of interesting to compare the differences, right? If you think about the initial uh, beginnings of the Pentecostal movement in the United States among poor working class people, uh, ever since the post-war era, pretty much been a middle-class thing like everything else. And um, again, some other similarities, a lot of turnover, uh, a lot of um, one scholar of uh, the charismatic movement in Cameroon uh, described the charismatic movement as, quote, a place of spiritual transit, quote, unquote, for people seeking spiritual healing and spiritual powers, which is, this is the other thing to note about, especially in Africa, which is so different. And forgive me if I make any misstatements about any of these places. I'm, I'm from the United States, obviously, but I've only read about these things, but Africa's even more than Latin America is a what some scholars call has a, an enchanted religious landscape, meaning that they really believe in the existence of spirits in a real direct way in every in their everyday lives. And in fact, one of the biggest problems for the Catholic Church in uh, Africa today uh, is in fact priests being confronted with their parishioners with what they think take to be problems of witchcraft in their life. Um, I'm not mean to look down on this sort of thing. It's a very serious thing for people in Africa, and which is why you're reading to have uh, priests in the charismatic movement there, the Catholic one. They begin to borrow from Pentecostals because some of their some of their practices. Because if not, these 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 parishioners leave. They go where they think they can get spiritual help for their problems. Uh, because there is this really intense view that there either are bad spirits uh, in people's lives. Um, just give you a very, very, I'll give you one example, by the way, how, how, how weird this can be. Um, one of the authors I, I looked at uh, discussing this talked about a Pentecostal healer who did, you know, healings in, you know, big mass stadiums like they did elsewhere, but he was not only followed by Pentecostals, Catholics, but also Muslims. Uh, because again, in Africa, again, the thing, you know, they, they tend to think more in terms of spirits more than anything else, I guess. Um, I mentioned enchanted religion to talk about, you know, one of the, one of the things, interesting dividing lines of the Catholic charismatic renewal, we'll get to this in a moment, is it's kind of a post-Vatican II movement. And yet the Vatican II movement, Vatican II is in some ways about, well, it depends on who you ask, I get it, but at least in practice, what it became was an adaptation of the Catholic Church to Western modernity, to modern this and modern that. The Catholic Charismatic Movement, like the Pentecostal Movement, is a very much an anti-modern, <laughs> atavistic sort of movement. Uh, it believes in things like spirits and stuff like this. So it's a very interesting thing that this came about in Africa. Um, you know, interesting to see how, because you know, again, Western, like, you know, I, I admit I have my PhD, I studied history. 
And so it's very interesting to be com confronted with a very different worldview and shows you how different the charismatic movement is in different places across the world. It's not the same thing in some ways. It's the same thing, obviously, but it has very different local manifestations, obviously. Um, and one of these, I'll mention this just because to give you an idea about how globalization plays into all this. I mentioned missionary priests who founded some of these groups in Africa. I'm going to butcher the poor man's name, but I, but I um, mentioned him. Uh, Mindman Hegba, uh, who was a Jesuit missionary priest, um, uh, founded a group called Ifata uh, in 1976 in Cameroon, um, kind of spread throughout uh, parts of Central Africa, became a major figure there. Um, Efrata actually has branches in, in both in Paris, London, and a couple places in the United States as of, as of 2010. So uh, the spirit is coming back. Uh, obviously, the spiritual movement is coming back from Africa that way. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a different thing in some ways from what I've just been describing the origins of it in America. Uh, another big difference would be, uh, I say, biggest difference or big global difference would be the. Um, well, what's the largest of these movements in the world today is the movement called El Shaddai in, uh, in the Philippines. This is the biggest movement, biggest uh, movement in Asia, but also in the world. And um, El Shaddai is a, a, a charismatic Catholic group founded by, um, uh, excuse me, founded by his name here, Mike Velarde, a married lay Filipino real estate uh, magnate who, um, <clears throat> Um, supposedly had a miraculous healing back in the late 1970s and eventually founded his own radio station where he had his radio program in which uh, eventually he, he, he called, changed the name to El Shaddai, which is a long story. It's an Old Testament name uh, for God. But um, today it claims over 10 million members worldwide. 9 million in uh, the Philippines itself, and 2 million people abroad because there's a Filipino diaspora going to other countries, you know, globalization, going to find work and stuff. And so it is the biggest, it's the biggest charismatic group, it's the biggest lay movement I can think of in the world at this point. Uh, and it's very different in some ways. Again, differences from, again, the origin point in the United States and the Anglophone world. Um, Sort of like uh, um, what happens in uh, Brazil, you have these services, um, which I'll mention in a moment include mass, but they, they, they these rallies that'll last for hours on end in big stadiums. Um, the great majority of the people who attend these events are women uh, in, uh, in, uh, on El Shaddai. And uh, what happen is they'll begin with charismatic prayer, singing songs, dancing, stuff like this in these movements. And then in the middle of this, they'll have mass. The bishop, the priest will come on stage and perform, perform a liturgy. And then they'll start again, again with um, more prayer, more praise, stuff like this. And then finally, at the end of this, Brother Mike, as he likes to call himself, comes out on stage dressed in like neon colored jackets, got this pink jacket, sports coat, and gives a long sermon uh, about how to this is basically the, the whole the whole service here and um yeah so you have this this massive movement uh which uh um in uh, uh starting from this what is obviously by the way modeled on pentecostal and evangelical style uh services it also partakes of <coughs> excuse me uh, what's called the prosperity gospel which i mentioned before one of the main messages of El Shaddai is that if you embrace uh, 
And if you embrace God's spirit, if you embrace um, submitting to the to the to the uh, the spirit of God, it um, it will bring about health and wealth. And again, this is one of the more questionable things in terms of traditional Catholic theology about uh, about El Shaddai. Although on the other hand, its members defend it by saying that well, they're just trying to be positive about about what God has given them. They want meant to, they're meant to you know God is meant to sort of you know give us abundance. And they're meant to share it. They, they uh, members, if they can, tithe and stuff like this. And they'll just show us to die. Um, but it's a much more, much more, cl much closer to evangelicalism. Um, think Joel Austin than it is maybe to some of the Pentecostal movements. One other thing that's in, uh, also different about it, by the way, in terms of its differences from the other other groups. And this is something I, I haven't mentioned here. I mentioned that headship model in the United States. I don't think that was exported that widely anywhere else. It definitely wasn't, it's definitely different with El Shaddai. Now they have, you know, Mike Velarde is the head of El Shaddai. He has a group of disciples who are lay preachers who go, you know, preach in the local meetings and stuff. But they also have, each small group has a coordinator for local organization to run things, to coordinate with the center. And that's always a woman. Uh, and in fact, women uh, will serve as lectors and things like this. In other words, they have positions of responsibility in a way they don't in these other groups. So it's a very weird uh, sort of different thing, uh, is, uh, is El Shaddai. My um, <clears throat> voice is beginning to get out of me. A couple other things before we get, um, before I wrap this up real briefly, probably exhausted you at this point, I'm exhausted myself. Um, probably worth, worth mentioning Francis McNutt in all this. Francis McNutt uh, was a Dominican friar who was actually, when I mentioned the, the beginnings of the, the uh, the charismatic movement in 1967. I um, <clears throat> I mean, it sounded like it only started in one place in Duquesne. It actually started a couple other places. There's actually a sort of quasi charismatic event taking place in Bogota, Colombia, the Minutos de Dios, de Dios um, um, group down there. But also Francis McNutt, as a Dominican friar, went to a retreat with Protestants, Pentecostals in Tennessee in 1967, had his own baptism in the Holy Spirit experience. And he became a he became an evangelist for this. Um, he went all over the place uh, in the 1970s, went made multiple made multiple trips to Latin America, to Africa to Nigeria, places like that, went to India, um, all over the world basically. And he quickly became convinced of, and this is one of the things I mentioned, the general trend of uh, of charismatic spirituality in terms of what charismatic gifts they emphasize. They emphasize healing more than anything today. He emphasized that. And because he went to places like Nigeria and ran into these things where, again, the local missionaries were all, you know, Irish, right? And so they had no, been trained in Western universities. They had no idea what was going on when, you know, uh, African parishioners would come in and talk about, you know, people being possessed by witches and stuff like this. They were totally thrown off. And so Francis McNutt began um, pushing the idea that you need to reject in some ways modern Western ideas of how you looked at these things because he thought this did, the rest of the world just didn't actually match up with that. And um, I have some reservations as well, several about Francis McNutt. Again, illustrates some of the dangers of this. In 1980, he, um, he got married and left the priesthood. Uh, and in fact, uh, he didn't do any campaigning on this, but he like, basically rejected the church's teaching on celibacy ever after. He eventually, by the way, he did this ministry till his death. I've written tons of books, but he was eventually reconciled to the church. He had his he had his marriage blessed, uh, nineteen ninety three, or the church. He died last year in twenty twenty. Um, 
but again, one of the illustrated, I'll get into some normal, one of the, one of the problems with the charismatic, charismatic movement, it, it does tend to sort of open up boundaries, if you know what I mean, with terms of the church itself. Um, in fact, as far as I can tell, he directed what looked like most of his ministry toward Protestants, if I judge from the titles of his books and what little I looked at for this. Uh, but he deserves a mention here as being important. And then finally, <clears throat> uh, there have been a few scandals abroad uh, in the uh, in the, uh, the charismatic movement. Uh, usually similar things to what you've heard, what I've already talked about already, with a few exceptions, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, for the most part, you're gonna have, um, you're gonna have, uh, uh, <clears throat> like pretty much everywhere, this is again, this is not unique to the charismatic Catholics, but the most common refrain is uh, spiritual arrogance. That tends to be the thing that got people most that were being looked down upon by these people who, and again, when you have this powerful experience, you tend to, it, it's a natural temptation to look down on people who haven't had it. But in terms of serious scandals, just a few, <clears throat> um, probably the most notable one was um, um, Emmanuel Malingo who was the former Archbishop of Lusaka, uh, uh, Bishop of Lusaka, uh, uh, yeah, uh, who um, became a charismatic, was probably the first bishop in Africa to become a charismatic, actually became a healer. He went around healing people in the early 1970s. He eventually started doing exorcisms on his own without, without any sort of reference to the church. This got him in trouble. And in 1983, he was actually removed as bishop and recalled to Rome. Well, in 2001, he was actually, he actually married <laughs> uh, this caused, caused a riff. He began attacking clerical celibacy. And then in 2006, the final straw was he ordained a bunch of married men in the priesthood without any, uh, without permission and uh, was excommunicated in 2006. Uh, 2006. So, um, so that's one sort of area there. Um, there have been a few allegations of use. The one I know about uh, 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 in terms of charismatic groups just recently back in January of 2021 was a Maltese uh, group in Malta. Don't remember the name of it, but again, similar accusations about controlling behavior, stuff like that. I will say the only evidence I've found so far, maybe one other exception, of actual sexual abuse um, uh, came from the founder of the Community of the Beatitudes in France and Paris. And I don't have the gentleman's name here. Um, the founder of that community apparently uh, manipulated certain several members of the original community into having sex with him and that was revealed in 2011 that's about the only other stuff i found so again some of the same differences but also some of the same problems uh, globally as well okay so we're getting to the end here and i've talked a while uh hopefully you're not as tired as i am a couple of last things <clears throat> as we wrap this up one last thing to note about all this is just the relationship of the charismatic movement to the hierarchy. Now I mentioned that again, especially in, in, um, in Brazil, especially in Latin America, at first there was a lot of suspicion and a lot of hesitation to embrace the Catholic charismatic movement. And they only began to embrace it in Latin America after they started to believe members of the Pentecostals. So, but from the beginning, I know they had, you know, there's a couple of run-ins with the hierarchy where they kicked, you know, the servants of the Christ, the King out of, um, out of Steubenville, other places like that. But for the most part, they were actually really quick to embrace it. Um, I mentioned, I think I mentioned this already, but they had their own offices in the Vatican by 1975. 
Uh, Cardinal Sunens of Belgium actually invited Ralph Martin and some of the members of uh, People of Praise and Word of God to come to come to Belgium to establish an international uh, service organization for worldwide covenant communities. And by 1993, Vatican had formally recognized this, given it formal recognition as being part of the, the church or whatever. Uh, and in fact, uh, for all that, the, the, uh, there was a big celebration in Rome, an official celebration, the Rome's blessing of the uh, Golden Jubilee, 50 years of the Catholic Charismatic Movement. And then a year later, uh, Pope Francis actually created a, an umbrella organization in the Vatican uh, for all the sort of charismatic groups uh, in the world. So it's always had its support to a certain degree. And I'm, I mentioned this to wrap up the few last thoughts about the meaning and significance of this. Because I'm not going to address, and if I, if I sound like I'm brushing over things here, I am a historian by training. I have my PhD in, in modern British history. So I'm doing this as a, a service to my fellow Catholics. I'm not an expert in any of this. So don't, you're saying, well, this is wrong, that's wrong. Well, I'm doing this in my spare time, okay? Uh, but I also don't want to claim any authority they don't have. I'm not a theologian. I don't, I only have opinions. So don't take anything I say too much to heart. Um, one of the things that's interesting about, again, the Catholic charismatic removal is that there's a lot of assumption from popes on downward that, well, this was a natural outgrowth of Vatican II, that the charismatic movement is an answer to the Vatican II's this, Vatican II that. And I have to say, I'm kind of skeptical of this. I don't think really it is. And I say this because I got this from reading some of the scholars I read about the movement in in other countries, in Africa, Latin America. The reason why being that, again, Vatican II in practice meant modernity. It meant adapting to modern times. Whatever else you can say about charismatic Catholics, they're not modern in that sense. Now they're modern in the sense of using modern technology, modern more means of communication, that sort of thing. But their message and their sort of form of spirituality is not actually. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's it's not really a, you know, again, you can overdo the whole, you know, well, Vatican II involved the lady. Actually, there are plenty of lay movements in the church before Vatican II. Uh, some of them were precursors in some ways to the charismatic organizations I mentioned. I mentioned Curcio in Latin America, Catholic action was big in places like um, uh, Mexico. Uh, being being organizations where lay people took initiative, which by the way, if I haven't you know, I've been focusing a lot on criticisms here. It's a, it's a show about controversies. One of the good things, one of the best things about uh, the Catholic Charismatic Movement is its lay, um, it's its lay character. Getting lay people involved in their faith is a good thing on the whole. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm a little skeptical about this uh, embrace um, of, it's, this is a Vatican II thing. And in fact, it's interesting, if you don't know, <clears throat> I mentioned Colonel Joseph Sunens, who was the first sort of um, uh, patron of the movement uh, internationally. If you don't know who Cardinal Sunens was, he was someone who was one of the most, you can use the term liberal, progressive, in theological terms, cardinals uh, at the time uh, in the 60s and 70s, coming out of Vatican II. He was an opponent of uh, Humanae Vitae. From what I understand, he encouraged priests in his in his in his diocese in his country to to reject it. Uh, he, um, if you're a traditionalist and you don't like this, he's one of the people who who encouraged um, uh, communion in the hand, which you know the Vatican, by the way, issued directives in the 1960s to stop, but everybody ignored it. Well, he's one of the people that basically made that happen. My point is, 
it's it, you know he's a, he's a liberal right and i'll come back to this in a second one of the other early patrons of um of the movement uh specifically of a community that was formed in rome in 1970 called lumen christi by a couple of uh, dominicans um one of their supporters was a uh teacher at the um god i think it was the gregorian university in rome a young italian priest named carlo maria Mon, uh, marini uh, Martini, excuse me, Carlo Maria Mont uh, Martini. And if you don't know that name, Carlo Maria Martini eventually become the, uh, the Cardinal Bishop of Milan and one of the most liberal cardinals in the church. And I mean someone who, if you're aware of what's going on in Germany today, those were all his ideas. <laughs> Bless homosexual unions, and, you know, communion for the divorced and remarried, all that stuff. That's him. And I say this because it, it makes you puzzling, right? Why would two of the most liberal figures in the Catholic Church during the 20th century, in the beginning anyway, take to the charismatic? Well, one reason I think is, first I call it, I don't know if Europeans at that point, bishops like that, really knew what they were looking at when they, they saw Pentecostal Protestantism <laughs> coming into the church. Um, I say that because I think they had an idea I think the I, I can't prove this by the way I don't have evidence for this but you know how progressive Catholics like to invoke the spirit of Vatican II. One of the, the spirit of Vatican II to invoke the Holy Spirit as if it's speaking against the tradition of the Church. I think that's what they had in mind. I think it's what Cardinal students had in mind initially, which is of course ironic if you know anything. I haven't talked about the political aspects of. Pentecostalism or things like this, they tend to be very socially and politically very conservative. <laughs> so um, whatever else you can say, they've never bitten from that particular apple that was offered to them by the likes of Sunans. If that's what he was offered, I don't even know, but I do know he's a very, very liberal guy. Uh, interesting, uh, they took to that initially. Second thoughts, um, a couple of years ago, uh, Pope Francis gave a, a talk to Charismatic uh, Catholics, and he he used a phrase I thought was well. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna disagree. Uh, he talked about the the experience of charismatic Catholics being universal for the whole church, and I have to say this is one of the things I I, I really don't think it is for the whole church. If you're talking about not the covenant communities or any of their particular problems, which I don't think by the way are particular to charismatic uh, experiences. I think it's just the particular model of authority they had for some of those communities early on. Um, it seems to me pretty obvious the types of charismatic experiences we're talking about here, even by the way, the ones that are not necessarily extravagant or extraordinary. I don't think that's for everybody. <laughs> I don't think it should be universal. I don't think it's going to be universal. I think it's a good thing that people are engaging in this, generally speaking. Um, I don't have any, I have no use for it. I don't connect to, I don't connect to God that way or to the Holy Spirit that way. I have no problem with people doing that outside the liturgy in charismatic prayer groups. Um, but I, I, I wonder if it really is, because it is and just, just in general terms, not just within the Catholic Church, but in the global, global Christianity. It is the going thing for the foreseeable future that's going to increase. I don't know what long-term prospects it has, because I, I think um, one of the reasons I started this talk with talk about social changes is I think Clearly, the Pentecostal movement as a whole is responding to changes in society. Not, not saying, by the way, that it's a naturalistic phenomenon or anything like that. It's just that it's partly a response to that. And I think, because things always do, when eventually, you know, social, when, uh, when uh, 
um, when uh, social changes, when society changes again, the, the sort of spread of Pentecostalism may, not, may, may change as well. Anyway, it's not a big thing, but um, then thoughts on authority and theology. Again, this kind of goes back to, I mentioned earlier, some of the problems theologically speaking with the term baptism and the Holy Spirit, which I, from what I understand, most charismatic Catholics avoid these days, which is good. Um, I do think, and there was one uh, theologian I read in, in uh, preparation for this named John Joy. He made a, 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 an astute point, I thought, and other people he was quoting did, that it's probably a, a, it's probably wise not to connect the charismatic movement to the sacraments so much. Because one of the things that happened in the beginning in the 1970s is that Catholics were very, um, they were very cognizant of the fact that this all sounded really weird. And so the way it's been explained most of the time to people is that, well, this is just the working out of the graces you got from baptism or confirmation. And I think Joy was right. One of the things he mentioned is that it's really, it's probably, first of all, it's not true. <laughs> um, I think it's, it confuses the graces you get from the sacraments, which are the normal way, by the way, you get the, the sanctifying grace uh, uh, from the sacraments with uh, charismatic grace, which is, Again, again, part of the reason was, of course, and this is one of the good things about the charismatic renewal, is that as, um, you know, Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical on this in the 1890s, 1896, I think, you know, Catholics in, in the modern West, I mean, before Vatican II, tended to not have much of a devotion to the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was not active in their life. And of course, because of modern Western, you know, science, naturalistic theories, materialistic understandings of the world, we have a, uh, in the West anyway, not outside of uh, the Western world, we have a fairly, um, a fairly denuded sense of, 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 of spirituality. And so that part of it's uh, obviously a good thing. Uh, and it's perfectly true that we can get a renewal of the Holy Spirit outside of the sacraments. But it can't be a replacement for them. And again, it kind of connects back to the whole idea of these, these covenant communities early on, almost because they were, you know, they wanted to be spiritual elite, which is a good thing, seeing themselves as sort of almost replacements for the sacraments. These experiences aren't replacements for the sacraments, even though I think they're they're fine on their own outside the liturgy. Um, um, and, and again, for everything I've said here, for all the problems that it has, I, I can't I can't stress this enough, you know, um, the people that it attracts, the charismatic movement, are the best argument for it in a lot of ways. Again, I have some issues with it, obviously, a lot of them. Um, and it, actually, it's, it was mostly with some of the stuff earlier on. I mean, the form of worship, I won't go into this too much here, uh, in terms of the liturgy. You know, this is one of the things, again, that uh, I mean, Adrian Ramers mentioned this, but the idea that Again, charismatic experience can't be a replacement for liturgical worship. And the reason why is this, you know, worship in a Catholic sense is not primarily something we experience or do. Worship is something God does and God did in Jesus Christ when he was alive on earth. Our worship begins when he sacrificed himself on the cross. And it comes to us because he made himself, he becomes with the 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 mediation of human agency his body and blood uh, his body and blood are made present the eucharistic elements are in the worship during the liturgy 
um, that's true. True worship comes from God directly and not from these types of experiences. So that's, again, that doesn't mean, you know, uh, again, like I said, it's more of a personal, it's not a personal thing for me. Outside of the liturgy, I'm, I'm fine with that. That's why I think it should be kept separate from the liturgy. I understand what Father Rossi and people like siblings are doing that like that down in um, in Latin America, you know, the Philippines. I still don't think it's a good thing. Um, again, maybe say it's never necessary for the time being. I, I think eventually that's gonna. I think last thoughts. I think eventually what's gonna have to happen is um, the charismatic renewal is gonna have to lead to not just a renewal of the institutional church, which I think it can help contribute to, but also to re uh, re renewal of tradition in the church, connection to it. That's the danger of it, is it tends to lead away from that with all this emphasis on personal experience. In any event, uh, that took a lot longer than I thought it would. <laughs> uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you, you can actually listen to the whole thing, it was a lot longer than I thought it would be. My apologies for this. Um, if you like what you saw, um, you can find more on my website. Uh, it's the actual address is churchcontroversies.com. I have links to my earlier talks. I've been doing this for four years now. Uh, this is the last one for springs, the last one we'll do this year. My talks tend to be, um, they tend to be based on the, the, uh, the academic cycle, so I'm done. I actually have to teach courses in the summer anyway, so I don't have a lot of time. I, I may not have much time in the fall either, so I may push the start back of when I come back with this later in the fall. But uh, yeah, look at my Facebook page, Controversies in uh, Church History on Facebook. Uh, you can find earlier uh, videos as well on YouTube. So check that stuff out, like, subscribe. Pay attention to the website. Uh, I'm going to be start doing more things on my blog going forward, um, posting more there. So if you're interested in stuff, you can follow along with some of the, the reading and writing I'm doing. And so I hope you guys enjoy that. In any case, I hope you guys got some out of this. Um, uh, may the Holy Spirit bless you all uh, and uh, the Holy Trinity keep you in God's peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, uh, you have a uh, wonderful summer, and you'll hear from me soon, I hope. Take care.